Oh, did I hit the video button? Uh, I don't know. I, I actually hit the hang up button by mistake. So, oh. <laughs> a lot of chaos here. Dark. Right. So it sounds good, actually? Yeah, no, it sounds fine. In the beginning, it was exactly like I told you. It was all muffled and crappy, but you fixed it right away. So, yeah, sounds good. Uh, I'm actually going through the that new Focusrite thing. So. Okay. Except I'm not using headphones, so uh, you're coming through on my uh, my uh, the, the laptop speakers. Yeah, which are the new ones, the studio monitor speakers. I I might have to send the headset back. Yeah, something's up there if that's the case. Yeah, if I cannot see, I can download the drivers, but I can't open them up. And it asked me, what would you like to open these these drivers with? I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I should automatically extract. Of course, right. Yeah. But you can hear me okay, right? Oh, perfect. Perfect. All right, good. All right. And as long as I'm not muffled as usual. Oh, right? not at all. You sound fine. Not as usual. It's just, you know, the, in last week sounded that weird echo, but it was clear. And then the beginning of this, you're talking like, oh, what the fuck? Well, I, had, I had to adjust. I had yeah. to adjust. That's it. You fixed it, so no big deal. All right. All right. So so this this is the Katie Segal show, right? Katie <laughs> Segal. Married with children, girl? Well, yeah. better than that, I actually remember her from before that. You remember Bette Midler had a special on HBO where she came out dressed as a mermaid in a wheelchair, and she had, like, the two bimbos behind her, and Katie Seagal was one of them, and she would feel, like, giant nuts hanging above her, and she would squeeze her balls. <laughs> I don't remember that at all. Yeah. Right? She had two bimbos that were with her, and they would sing all these dirty songs, whatever the hell. And, yeah, Katie Seagal was uh, one of the Bette Midler girls. <laughs> Remember that? Yeah, they played on HBO like every fucking day back in I don't know '84. She she was that chiller. I don't know for whatever reason I just didn't like try to get a picture with her. I I just didn't. Maybe I should have. But you know, I heard she, yeah, I heard she was very nice. But it was like it's kind of like a joke level celebrity. You know, it's okay a TV star and you know <laughs> a bit middle girl. All right, whatever. <laughs> People yeah, know her, but but, yeah. but she's like kind of oofy. So mm-hmm. you know, like oh yeah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> So on that note, please start. You're listening to Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, your guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, not Katie, but George Seagal. Uh, actually, I was going to say Seagal. It's like Steven Seagal. George Siegel. On the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Seeds Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening, and welcome to the eighth and final episode of the eleventh scene of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, uh, the the uh, traveling story <laughs> raconteur and maven of sleeves and virago of vituperiveness, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the love, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. We won't be discussing uh, Matt Dillon and uh, Richard Butler at the Roxy Music Show tonight anymore, but we'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine. So, uh, tonight, as I said, we are going to be talking George Siegel. Yeah. So, I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul, as I mentioned. Hi, Lewis. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Yeah. 
So, I guess we can get rolling after all this. Manhattan's own George Siegel Jr. was an interesting actor, moving deftly between solid and quite serious dramatic roles to a career in far broader, if generally still intelligent, comedies in the 70s. He specialized in easily frustrated, angrily gesticulating types, lashing out at the vagaries of life and the world surrounding, with arms flailing and temple blood vessels throbbing, but it was almost always for a cheap laugh. Alan Arkin was much darker and tended to rein it in. Richard Benjamin was snarkier and prone to crack wise and mug for the camera. But Seagal, here we go again, but Siegel, it's all up front and a bit obnoxious, very New York Jewish in demeanor and style. And yet, something about the undertone said it was all in fun, and unlike, say, Richard Dreyfus or cut-rate Siegel wannabe Judd Hirsch, he always came off as likable in the end. One of the first actors of prominence to leave his name unchanged, very common even to this day with Jewish actors and actresses, in a bid to appeal to a red state America who would very often reject them out of hand otherwise. He had some serious balls, particularly given some of his own stated experiences mm-hmm. involving getting kicked down the stairs by a bunch of Catholic school kids and seeing temple-goers' tires slashed and such like on a regular basis, though he was decidedly secular himself. After a stint in the Army during the Korean War, he signed up to learn the method with Lee Strasberg and wound up working bit parts in both film and television in the early 60s, gaining lead roles within a handful of years thereafter, which brings us to the first film tonight, a role originally meant for another guy that we'll be doing a show on next week, Frank Sinatra. So uh, anything you want to say before we go into that? No, let's go into that. I'm going to see what you want to start with. King Rat, 1965. Good, yeah. Brian Forbes, boring drama author whose only actual film of note is The Stepford Wives, directs this amazingly dry adaptation of James Shogun Clavel's King Rat, a fictionalized memoir of the author's time in a Japanese prison camp during World War II. Siegel, one of the few Americans in a largely British prisoner of war camp, is a hustler managing to scam the other prisoners out of what little they have, and always managing to live comparatively high on the hog, effectively making himself the capo of the camp. When Japan finally surrenders, Siegel is crestfallen as he's no longer in some form of power, such as it was, and the Cockney cracks that it's their time now, just like when they tossed Churchill out of office back home. Mm. Uh, that's a rather unusual take against the man who kept Fortress Europe from taking over the entire free world until America got off its isolationist ass and joined the fray. Not to mention the anti-American overtones, both in the portrayal of Siegel as a scumbag with no morals or boundaries, love that dog scene, and this rather direct statement of the film being one big allegory against him slash us. And shockingly, this was an American production, despite being manned almost exclusively by a cast and crew of Brits. Patrick O'Neill from old favorite Chamber of Horrors and the Mary Warren off Silent Night, Bloody Night. Denholm Elliott of Hammers to the Devil of Daughter and Amicus's Vault of Horror and House of Drip Blood. And Tom Courtney, who Brits seem to adore, but whose only film of note is Spy Flick, a dandy and aspect co-star. There's even a late cameo by Family Feud and Match Against Richard Dawson, also of Hogan's Heroes and The Running Man from our Arnold Schwarzenegger show. But this is one dreary, overlong slog of a piece of shit. And this is from the guy who gave a Shogun? It's very interesting. It's it's in the vein of The Great Escape without The, without the Great Escape. <laughs> and, you know, it's... But it's not likable like that. Nor is it thrilling, yeah, exciting. Yeah, it's not likable <laughs> like that. It's not entertaining like that. It's... But it probably, probably also represents what was going on. I mean, yeah, some reality of the prison camp experience. Yeah, it probably probably does. I mean, for you and I both saying, well, it's not a great movie, it's not an entertaining movie, it probably does represent in some way the realities of uh, what was going on for these prisoners of war. And Clavel himself, apparently. Yes. And, and, and yes, and Clavel, James Clovell himself. It's funny, some of these people do appear in The Great Escape, like James Donald, you know. Richard Dawson. Yeah, uh, and a couple others. And it it's a bit overlong, but 
you know, there's a time period where these movies were a bit over long. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I have to say that it, it, it's it winds up being really a heavy film. Yes. And and um and the thing the thing with George, who who we're, we're covering tonight, he did a lot of heavy pictures. Yes. Early on, and uh, I guess we're going to be covering quite a few of them. You know, you know some manner at least but um yeah this is why although i will say king rat is hardly and rarely revisited nowadays and i think people should just to to catch you know like what 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 george siegel was capable of you know uh you know he was thought of mainly as a comedic actor later on yes and he was thought of uh as a uh you know really light light actor but he he did a lot of things that really that really uh some heft and some runks after another. Yes, yes. And so uh yeah, this is one of those pictures that definitely exhibited that. Okay, so in nineteen sixty six he does a film for the interesting Mike Nichols, Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf with of all people Liz Taylor. It's a soapy drama and I just didn't <laughs> I couldn't get myself to indulge, but I'm sure you wanted to cover that one since it's a big one for him. Well, yeah, it's a big one for him. And Sandy Dennis, who I, I just funny, I met Sandy Dennis in person and uh not the club singer from the nineties. <laughs> That's Sandy Dennis. No, no, Sandy Dennis, <laughs> the actress. Uh it, 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 it it's funny, but she was another disturbed soul <laughs> this is yeah uh, mike nichols film based on the ernest lehman screenplay based on the edward albee play yes which was off probably off on broadway whatever probably off. so basically you have these well-to-do bickering couples which is uh, elizabeth taylor and richard burton and it's actually <laughs> we're, we're doing a burton show folks yes. so uh it's interesting because um their in-again, out-again relationship. Mm-hmm. It's funny because they had this sort of fiery relationship, but I would not picture Burton being a Welshman as a very fiery character. But they certainly were heavy drinkers, and they certainly fought a lot, and then they remarried and unmarried. It was, it was worse than Don Johnson and Melanie Griffith in that respect. <laughs> yeah, I think they remarried and married like five times. Yeah, least... something crazy like that. Yeah, so... Basically, uh, Martha and George, where Elizabeth and Richard, you know, have their friends uh, Nick and Honey, which is George Siegel and Den- uh, Sandy Dennis. This, you know, this is a small. It's it's a play that's transposed to film, and and she drinks, he drinks. Well, we know that anyway, and they bicker, and you know, so these people are on the cusp of <laughs> what's going on, and then they have their own issues which are opened up in the course of this film. So I don't think it's as dreary as people might say. I, I think it's a powerhouse of a, but it wasn't a film Broadway play. You know, it's just, it's just like the film version of what was going on. It's a tough sit through. Uh, it's a tough sit through for people who may have had shitty relationships. <laughs> yes. Issues in relationships. A lot of people, love this a lot of people hate it but uh, at the same time i have to say you know i i rewatched it for the show and like damn burton <laughs> richard hates elizabeth elizabeth hates richard but this is 1966 and they would stay together for decades so it's sort of like out of the relationship into reality i don't know it's very strange <laughs> 
So uh, next up is 1966, the Quiller Memorandum. Mm, yes. Harold Pinter, the icy, pessimistic, absurdist playwright of such understated yet emotionally loaded stage plays of relationship collapse as The Room and The Birthday Party, delivers the screenplay for this effort by Doc Savage, Logan's Run, and Orca director Michael Anderson. The latter film discussed in both our Charlotte Rampling and Richard Harris shows. George Sanders of the Saint film series Jess Franco's Sumeru film Girl from Rio from our trilogy of Jess Franco shows and by far the best Mr. Freeze on TV's Batman joins <laughs> Sir Alec Guinness Obi-Wan Kenobi from Star Wars and the Neil Simon Peter Falk Murder by Death Ingemar Bergman standby and star of the excellent Night Visitor Gil Brenner's Ultimate Warrior 1980's campy Flash Gordon and the first two Exorcist films not to mention SCTV's Bob and Doug's Strange Brew Max von Sydow 13 Days to Die and Vengeance of Fu Manchu's Peter Carsten, and creamy Eurospy and French crime film starlet Senta Berger. Senta Berger. Whose work in aforementioned films were addressed in our shows on German creamy Eurospy films and Jess Franco mm. for this slightly stilted 60s true life inspired Eurospy style film about Nazis still operating under more respectable cover to overthrow democracy. Hmm, we could make a very direct parallel to members of a certain political party here, but that would be ridiculously obvious to anyone with a brain. <laughs> and Anderson drops a few rather nice scenes and location shoots from the Hitchcockian opening where a man is walking down an empty city street late night to reach a phone booth, only to be shot down as soon as he picks up the receiver, to the stunning decadent mansion that Nazis occupy later in the proceedings. It's convoluted and appropriately open-ended, a political intrigue without the chillier, drier feel of John LeCar's Alec Guinness masterwork, Tinker Tailor Soldier's Spy, or even as bleak and cynical as the Harry Palmer films discussed in our Michael Caine show, but neither is it as Bondian and fantastic, if not optimistic, as the typical Eurospy. As such, it's hard to recommend to either fan base, but it does contain enough elements of the latter and the overall sensibilities of the former, perhaps even the much-fated Frank Sinatra film, The Manchurian Candidate. I was going to say here, we didn't decide on it yet, maybe we should do a Sinatra film show. Well, we, we are, right? Yes, we are doing that. Yeah. I liked it, it's at least on par with other British spy films like Deli in the Mail, just realized that its assessment fails to capture the equally strong flavor of Kane's Palmer films, and the later Tinker Taylor miniseries. It straddles many fences, to be sure. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree with with you on some points because it's 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 rather serious. It's rather heavy. You know, it's it's up there with the early Kane Palmer films and and movies of that ilk. And and it's interesting. You know, it's uh, I like how they 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 got George to appear in this movie and you know coming from what he's done before to do this kind of like Euro spy hybrid and it, it was out of his thing you know it was out of his uh usual playbook i guess comfort zone let's say i have we have to say comfort zone i'm sure for him it was probably like what do you want me to do <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know, you know it's not a comfort zone for him but uh i get knocked out and i wake up tied up in this old mansion with a bunch of not what the hell <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But, you know, this was a very big thing in 66. You know, the oh, Bond yeah. craze let this stuff in. They wanted to go hardcore with this stuff. Some people wanted to go hardcore, as witnessed uh, Michael Caine films. Mm -hmm. So I'm sure he was like, uh, all right. I'll try it. And it's it's not bad. No, it really isn't. It's it's and he's quite good mm -hmm. actually in the part. So I I would have to say yeah, this is something I would recommend people try checking out the Quiller Memorandum. It's actually um, how do I say? It's actually uh, if you yeah yeah if you like those Michael Caine Harry Palmer movies, it's it's in a way similar mm -hmm. to those, but 
different, but but um, maybe even a little bit of Mission Impossible, the TV series, which we covered on that show. Maybe a little bit of that, yes. Maybe a little bit of that as well. But uh, yeah, it's it, it, I actually enjoyed that Quilla Memorandum. Yeah, me too. So uh, yeah, I I recommend it. Yes. And that's actually the thing about Siegel. It's you know when you had mentioned it originally, I'm like, George Siegel, really. And then I thought about it and looked at some of his stuff. I'm like, you know, he actually was good in a lot of these dramas. He's not just like, okay, here's a comedic actor showing up. It's like, no. No. And he no. reigns it in more than people like, you know, like, like Alan Arkin or whatever. I'm like, okay. You know, be, here's the thing. Uh, one of the reasons why I recommended George Siegel for a uh, subject was like, I have seen things over the years. And I and I said, you know, wow, he's so good in this. Yeah. And he's so good in that. And he's so good in this. You know, he's yeah. so good now, and and uh, stuff I I hope we'll mention like um, even cheesy stuff like the owl and the pussycat. Which, <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that soon. Which is which is one movie where guys would say, "Wow, Bible Streisand is hot." Believe it or not, yes. Or the Heart Rock, which is one of the great heist movies. We'll get to that soon too. And the Terminal Man. Which is one of the most strange, strange movies. Still unable to see that, which pisses me off because I wanted to. Uh, and California Split, but I think we mentioned that in the early Google show, maybe. All right, so uh, the next three films, I wanted to see the first one for sure, St. Valentine's Day Massacre, which is a Roger Corman, but it's just, I can't find it out there. <laughs> so, uh, and there's also No Way to Treat a Lady and The Girl Who Couldn't Say No. So I don't know if you want to touch on those. Uh, St. Valentine's Day Massacre is a Roger Corman retelling of the, uh, you know, that infamous mafia hit day where they picked February 14th yes. to, you know, offer all these uh, town mafioso. And that was under Capone, I, wasn't it? Capone, yeah. yes, Capone. It was under Capone's orders. And um, I... Seen it numerous times. I can't remember. <laughs> I'm sorry, folks. Bye Bye Braverman was this uh, Jewish-centric film. Had Jack Warden, Joseph Weisman, Dr. No, uh, Jessica Walter from other films. It did pretty good. It was one of those strange things. Now, No Way to Treat a Lady was that Jack Smite movie with Rod Steiger as a serial killer. Very similar to the Boston Strangler. Oh, okay. And we covered that in our Tony Curtis show. Yeah. Rod Steiger played these variety of roles, sometimes as women, to gain access to apartments. And, and uh, George played the uh, investigating detective. When you say Rod Steiger, I can't help but think of the illustrated man. <laughs> and we covered that in our uh, Psychology Yeah, that's show. our guy. Yeah, Rod, <laughs> that Rod Steiger. Yeah. Yes, that Rod Steiger. It's a really kind of weird Rough movie, anybody, well, anything where Rod Steiger's a villain. You know, because Rod, Rod Steiger comes from that early... Early method, this? no? Yeah, early method. So we brought this up in one of our... Uh, it, it was that one. I think it was that show where the uh, we covered all the 60s sci-fi and all the and every sci-fi. Yeah, but beside that, we were talking about other method actors, and this is before microphones, and so they projected the voices more so the people in... The the, uh, the, the mezzanine, <laughs> yeah, the mezzanine could hear them. You know, I think it was our Pacino it, show. We talked all that method stuff. Yeah, Pacino. <laughs> we mentioned this so, so many times. You know, but Rod being bellicose guy, <laughs> uh, you know, he he really knew how to. He, almost as bad I, as Brian Blessed. <laughs> For all you yes, UK folks. In a way, yes, yes. Yeah, Brian Blessed was his twin in England. Yeah. 
<laughs> the problem the problem was with with Rod that when he when he did films over the consecutive decades after this, it was a while before when he did Ray and Ed. Though it was very interesting because it made for interesting portrayals. But a lot of times he did do shit like this. <laughs> and, you know, after a while, it became known as Rod Steiger as the shouting man. You know. <laughs> <Yes>. um, <laughs> but anyway, so Rod Steiger plays this. Yeah, he dresses up as a, a priest, a policeman, plumber, blah blah blah. A gay hairdresser. <laughs> um, it, it's an interesting movie to see. It's not a great movie, but uh, there's stuff going on there. So, I guess next up is the Bridget Ermagan, 1969. Mm. Unpopular and notably nasty director John Gillerman, <laughs> also of Shaft in Africa, the Tanya Robert Sheena, and the ridiculous Dino De Laurentiis King Kong drops this somewhat turgid hippie-era war film that, like his earlier The Blue Max, pretends we're in a much earlier decade than the decidedly anti-war late 60s. Essentially, it's about the taking of the Ludendorff Bridge, which allowed the Allies to roll into Germany and finally take Berlin in the final days of World War II. George Siegel is the dispirited U.S. tank commander who's seen too much. Robert Vaughn of Bullet and Joe D'Amato's Zombie 5 Killing Birds from our Steve McQueen and Joe D'Amato shows, respectively, is the Nazi one ordered to destroy the bridge and prevent their incursion, and Dr. Mabuza and Eurospy film hero Peter Van Eck, who we discuss in our German Creamy and Eurospy shows, is the Nazi general pushing him to hold off until one of their divisions can make their way back across so they don't get stranded. Ben Gazzara of Marco Ferreri's Ornella Muti starring take on the hard-living poet <laughs> Charlie Bukowski, Tales of Ordinary Madness. How do you... Uh, how do you... Hold on. How do you find, like, the deepest shit movies these guys do? <laughs> it's the only ones I care about, this bottom line. It's like, what do you do that's culty or interesting or funny? What, it's any like one of those. Vegas are of, like, chilling birds that rip your eyes out by, you know, like, Stacio you know, Bernardo. You know, like, everybody's going to go for, like, oh, look, what's the Oscar win? Oh, please, take that stuff and show it up your ass. <laughs> well, you I already told my Dylan opinions about that. E.J. Marshall, too. Yeah. <laughs> So let's see. <laughs> Got me laughing. Bo Hopkins of Tentacles and Nico Mastarakis of Nightmare at Noon. <laughs> Nightmare at Noon for my interview with Nico over at Third Eye Cinema. And Brad Dillman of the Mephisto Waltz, Chosen Survivors, and The Enforcer from our Clean Eastwood show all take part, but it's a fairly typical, watchable, but not especially exciting war film of the period. It's not as dry as some we could discuss, but it's hardly a thrill ride by most standards, nor do any of the performances really stand out and save the day. It looks nice, it's perfectly watchable, but eh. Yeah, it's watchable, but there there seems to be something wrong with it. I Probably just that Gilliman doesn't get along with all those people. Everybody hates that guy. <laughs> yeah, Gilliman did a, uh, one or two Bond films, I think, and uh, he did a couple of A-list movies, but this was... Uh... You know when you when you make these World War II films in the late sixties, you either have to approach them with a bit of irony and yes, like like opposition to the whole fact of like war. Kelly's <laughs> heroes, or you have to make a parallel to Vietnam, something parallel to Vietnam, or just make an all-out adventure film like like yeah, you know, the recent where Eagles there. Where Eagles there, yeah, yeah. But this has a decent cast. But the other thing is, you're you're selling, and here's the thing too, folks. You're selling a major motion picture with a cast that people are familiar with from television. So this is another thing. You know, we have Robert Vaughn, Ben Gazzara, Brad Dillman, E.G. Marshall. All these guys have been seen on TV at Infinitum. So it's like 
they're probably going, uh, wasn't that guy in the lawyers? Wasn't that guy in uh in the name of the game? You know, wasn't that guy on the you know, blah blah blah. You know, and people get confused. And that's why except for Siegel, that's why pictures like this didn't do big box office and it didn't. It didn't really do too well. I mean, my take. So, uh, 1970, The Owl and the Pussycat. Mm. You're insane. That's pretty good coming from a queer who peeps in the girl's windows. A surprisingly stunning Barbara Streisand. Mm. Seriously, she's smoking hot here. Is a somewhat reluctant hooker and porn star with aspirations to be an actress who runs afoul of nebbishy bookstore clerk and wannabe author Siegel when they complain about each other to their mutual landlord resulting in her getting evicted. We didn't wake you, did we? Oh, no, not at all. We just figured we'd go down and watch the garbage collectors at work. Get a jump on the crowd. He winds up letting her stay in his place until she finds another one, but a comedy of errors results in both winding up homeless and couch-jumping at friends' places, alternately screwing and fighting with each other as more and more chaos happens, inclusive of his fiancée. Of all people, Pinky Tuscadero herself, Roz Kelly, also <laughs> New Year's Evil in the Poland Halloween special, walking in on them and dumping them. Every once in a while, he'd pay me 50 bucks to sit in a chair across the way, with my hands tied behind my back, and I had to yell, bombs away, while he rolled hard-boiled eggs at me. What did you think about when he rolled the eggs at you? I thought about the 50 bucks I was going to get. Of course, it's a rom-com, so he winds up going out of his way to satisfy her many caprices. And she comes off equally New York brassy and heartwarmingly cute in her reactions there, too. Plus, she's dressed in one outfit after another that not only shows her the best advantage, but which screams 60s Dolly Bird, albeit adorned with a few over-the-top touches for laughs. It's no real surprise that he winds up falling for her, and despite everything, vice versa. You know what that shrink said? He said, do what you want as long as it doesn't make you unhappy. So I did. I didn't pay my bill. Didn't make me unhappy, but it sure made him mad as hell. Mm-hmm. Robert Klein, also of Hooper from our Burt Reynolds show, appears as Siegel's friend they impose upon, and he's banging, of all people, a just pre-green door, Marilyn Chambers. It's a bit dated and broad in its humor, but it's still a solid rom-com with a seedy veneer, but an innocent core. And it's quite literally the only film that will ever make you think of Babs as hot, and trust me, she is. No, there's a, there's a few movies that would, I would think Babs is hot, and uh, <laughs> but you know what? Totally agree with you on this. I saw this in... Uh, in the theater. <gasps> Shh. Uh, 19- I saw it as a teenager on TV, and I fell in love with it immediately. <laughs> 1970. So probably 71 at the Trump Cinema in Brighton Beach. <laughs> yes, his, his, his fucking perverted father had a little tiny theater in, in Brighton Beach called the You mean Trump's. the father that marched with the Nazis in 1920-something? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was the Trump Cinema. They, they showed some... Weird movies before it became all porno, and <laughs> which is true. <laughs> and I saw this, and I was like, oh, my God, I never thought Barbara Streisand was so hot. And I was like, I have to see more Barbara Streisand movies. <laughs> I kid you not. That felt the same way. I kid I you one. not. I was like, damn. You know, I was I, like, really, I'm Barbara sure. Streisand? you got to be fucking kidding me. You know, I saw The Star is Born and all that shit, and later on, Yenthal. I was like, oh, these are terrible. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there's a couple other things on uh, There's a couple other things hidden in there. But I was like, well, well, I think part of it was like the screenplay by Buck Henry, who was like a village voice writer, and, you know, he worked with uh, the early Saturday Night Live. He knew well, apparently, we, Siegel worked with them off Broadway. That's how they knew each other. Yeah, yeah. Siegel worked with them off Broadway, too. Yeah. And Herb Ross, again, a Broadway, off Broadway director guy. But it's just like, it worked. And, you know, she was still young enough. Even though she had already done Funny Girl, which was pretty big for her, I think she allowed, she being Barbara Streisand, she allowed herself to like, okay, let's let's see what we can do here. And, uh, you know, 
guys, if you don't like Barbara Streisand, never consider her being like Ophi. This is a movie to watch. Yeah, because I definitely am in that camp, but this film was like, holy shit, <laughs> where'd yeah, she come this, from, this is, and what happened yeah, to her? Yeah, yeah, this is like a holy shit movie. It was like, you watch The Owl and the Pussycat? Yes, it's dated. We both agree on this, but in a way, it's like, oh my god, I can see this. Yeah. And the funny part is, she's not just, she doesn't just come off as sexy, but she's got that cuteness to her, too, when she starts you know, doing the character. I'm like, where the hell is that? Where, where did this yeah. come from in this woman? Where did this come from? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You know, I, and you know what? Postscript. I always like Babs because ba- Babs with uh, Barbara Streisand. Babs. I don't think she's done any tours in recent years, but she used to come and uh, do tours, and she would come out against and say shit against the repubs. Oh yeah, no, she still does that stuff. And, and right and up into the nineties. Oh, I don't like Barbara Streisand. I'm going to burn all my Barbara Streisand. It's like burning <laughs> disco records, you know? Like this is funny. You know, I remember when people burn disco in favor of punk, but you're going to burn your Barbara Streisand. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I always liked the woman. You know, some things, you know, I, I didn't always get, but she's a force of nature. Oh, yeah. And here's the thing. In this movie, she's a force of fucking sexual nature. So, uh, to put it bluntly... Maybe that explains why Elliot Gould got married to her twice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, to put it bluntly, if... if, if if anyone did not ever think Barbara Streisand was Oomphy, this is the movie. Yeah. And I should also say, first off, that we did an Ellie Gould show as well, and we talk about this there a little bit. Yeah, but I think we covered it a bit more. <laughs> yeah, well, definitely. And uh, my earlier comment about Fred Trump uh, was actually sort of incorrect because he didn't march with the Nazis in the 20s. He marched with the KKK. And mm. it's right there in, I think, the New York Times. You can look up the. Uh, it's all over the place since, you know. 45 was in there, but uh, it's actually a matter of record. You can look it up yourself. <laughs> so, anyway, 1972, The Hot Rock. Oh, yeah. Half-assed heist film slash unfunny comedy with a bizarre cast from director Peter Yates, Bullet from a Stephen Queen show, and the Jackie Bissett showcase The Deep. He must like Jackie Bissett because both those films have her in it. And I think we're going to do a Jackie Bissett show in the future as well. Seagal's in this one. Uh, excuse me, Seagal's in this one. Redford. <laughs> <laughs> keep doing that because he... <laughs> Every time we mention Siegel, you're like, you mean Steven Seagal? No. <laughs> anyway, Siegel Redford, Moses Gunn, Bumpy from Shaft, and a baddie at Mom's Mabley's Amazing Grace, both from our exploitation show. Zero Mostel, a funny thing happened on the way to the forum, and Mel Brooks, the producers. And of all people, Charlotte Ray of Different Strokes and the Facts of Life. Redford is a recidivist con recruited by brother-in-law Siegel to heist an African diamond for Gunn. After the usual team recruitment, they pull off the job, sort of. They keep botching the end result due to circumstances and double-crosses from members and interested parties, forcing them to heist the same diamond over and over again. They finally get it. Roll credits. Uh, was this supposed to be funny? Even the heist parts, you know, we're not really talking Grand Slam here, nor Mission Impossible, or even It, it Takes a Thief-level business. It's not even Ocean's Eleven worthy. The film tries to take these sequences seriously, but it really doesn't work either as a heist film or as a comedy. It just kind of sucks, and then none of the cast belongs here, especially not the stiff and unemotional Redford, who I still can't understand the popularity of. He's like the modern-day Gregory Peck. So, what's your take? I highly disagree with you. <laughs> No, this is no, this is one I disagree with. You. I love this movie. Really? Yeah, it's one of my it's one of my favorites. It's so in the fucking theater. I think I saw it in Trump Cinema. 
It was, it was probably playing with the mad adventures of Rabbi Jacob because there are a lot of Jews living there. Uh, <laughs> weird double blue. I think you mentioned that movie before, too. Um, I like this, but Peter Yates, who directed Bullet, you know, Wade Cass, Robert Redford, George Siegel, Rod Liebman, you know, uh, Paul Sand, Moses Gunn, you mentioned William Redfield, you also be uh, well-known for uh, Milos Foreman's Cuckoo's Nest, Topo, Jeremy Mostel, like, he's a great cat. So why well, do I like theater anyway? <laughs> well, why do I like it more than you? Because I, I like heist movies, and I there, there's so much naturalistic stuff going on here. Like when Redford's outside the uh, place of scoping out, and then like you know the junkie guy comes by. I like that watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I like that watch. Cause that's the shit that happened in the seventies, you know. Oh yeah. Like. I don't like a watch like that. I like your watch. Okay, here. Because the guy pulled out a knife or a gun. Yep. And, the subways know, were the worst. It's, it's, yeah, you know. Hello, welcome to Brooklyn. So, uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, there's great, I thought, there's great stuff in here. Like, uh, you know, the trying to scam, <laughs> trying to scam Zero Mostel. So hard. So hard, y'all. You know. Paul Sands is the son, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they're trying to z- scam Zero Mistel so hard for the diamond information. But he scams them too. <laughs> no, but that, then just the thing, the whole thing with the elevator, and, and you know that that kind of works. It's like, yo, you guys are going so far. Yeah, I I, I like this movie. I, I I'm sorry, I disagree with you. It's a nah, fun heist movie. <laughs> I get it. You don't like it. This is what it's all about, you know. Give your opinion, you say what you gotta say, and there you go. Eesh. <laughs> so you obviously like heist movies a lot more than I do. I did do enjoy a few of them, like I said, the Grand Slam, the Mission yeah. Impossible shows. It, it takes a thief, you know. These are but really the one thing about the Hot Rock, though. There's really no, unless she appears briefly. There's really no female. Just that interest. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's no love interest, which is interest. part of the problem. <laughs> that and Robert Redford being in it. <laughs> I like so Robert anyway. Redford. You like Robert Redford? No, he's like I say, he's like the modern day Gregory Peck. You know, a friend when I was doing those, uh, I mentioned those movie clubs that I used to run on the job, mm. and this fellow was, you know, also very political, and much more so. He's involved with like Mikey Sherrill and all those people. You know, he's mm. doing campaign work for them, and he decided, you know, okay, why don't we do something like this? Because I brought up, I don't know which film I brought up, something that was political from basically the '60s or early '70s, and he says, why don't we do the Canada? I'm like, okay, why not? And I watched it, and I was like. Yeah, it's kind it's of a hard movie. Movie. It's a hard movie yeah. to talk about. Yeah. And, like, you know, he's, okay, this is Robert Ruffer's big dramatic thing. I'm like, he's, like, wouldn't. <laughs> he was a cipher, more or less. I'm like, eh. And everything I've seen him in, I felt the same way about that. But anyway. Well, Robert Ruffer is the precedent of Brad Pitt. Yeah, but honestly, at this stage of his game, anyway, I think Brad Pitt's a lot more emotional and has more, no, no, but, uh, yeah, more yeah, game. But, but I'm just saying he's the precedent. Yo, yeah, you want to see, okay, before we leave this, you want to see the most amazing Robert Redford performance. Uh, I forgot the name of the movie where he played a guy who was on a ship, small boat, decided to go out on a yachting thing, and they hit a hurricane, and uh, he, it was him against the elements. It was pretty good. It was a couple of years ago, but pretty good stuff. I, I like the guy more than you. 
<laughs> Where are we going next? Where are we do? Oh, no, it's another story. Gerard Depardieu. <laughs> that's another big monk. Uh, so anyway, A Touch of Class, 1973. What about your wife? We've been married for 11 years, and not once in all that time have ever been unfaithful to her in the same city. Where is she now? Out of town. Siegel stars as an American in London who hooks up with very interested divorcee Glenda Jackson, who, quote, can do with some good, healthy, uninvolved sex with someone who's in love with his wife and isn't going to be a pain in the ass when it's over. The only problem with their proto-Tinder date is that she finds the hotel he takes her to rather dingy, so they arrange for a dirty weekend in Spain. Things get really overcomplicated when first the wife, Hildegard Neal, wife of boisterous and bombastically voluble Brian Blessed, <laughs> who we mentioned earlier, also of the legacy, shows up. And then he runs into an old friend, Mira Sorvino's father, Paul, of Pacino's Panic in the Needle Park from our Al Pacino show, Oh God, from our pair of Donald Pleasant shows, and Cruising, again from our Pacino show, before declining into a career making shitty American mob films. And things just keep getting more convoluted and difficult for the two, as she laughs at his dumpy daughter and gets annoyed by his competitiveness with a local on the golf course. He wrenches his back when they're in the sack, and there's a long comedy of errors involving the two trying to get together for dinner and some waffling over whether they want to cut this off or move on further. It's pretty typical 70s sex comedy humor, but these days it sits a bit oddly. So the guy supposedly loves his wife and doesn't want to cut things off because he's bored or dissatisfied with her, yet he goes to ridiculous lengths to continue this fuck buddy's relationship with a woman who probably isn't that compatible and doesn't want to get involved in the first place. Do we root for them to become a couple and bang their way into the sunset? Or do we cringe and shake our heads at all of this? It's bizarre. That said, I do have a bit of a thing for Glenda Jackson, particularly in the period where she was running around in bangs. For an ostensibly posh and icy British girl, she does have more than a bit of a naughty streak. Not as kinky and pronounced as Charlotte Rampling, who we did a show on, but enough to raise a few eyebrows, to be sure. I liked her in the pseudo-nunsploitation Nasty Habits, which was much akin to Bardot's The Novices from our Bardot show, and Salome's Last Dance from our Ken Russell in the 80s show, and absolutely adored her in Hopscotch with Walter Matthau. This one falls somewhere in between, as she's still fairly stunning, and the focus is once again very much on sex, but Siegel's overly broad mugging as a beleaguered de facto Neil Simon lead, and the frankly fucked up conceit of the entire affair, reduce it to a mild appreciation more than any sort of recommendation to anyone not similarly enamored of Jackson's charms. Yeah, it's like a, a Neil Simon yeah, movie. Yeah, but he didn't do it. <laughs> not made from a Neil Simon play. Interesting cast. Now, Glenda Jackson, who actually does look like, oh, Paul Servino's in this. And he's he's quite interesting. Hilgard Neff, Neil, sorry, from a couple of things we really will recognize her from. I don't know. It's very, it's, it's very much like what was popular on Broadway and off-Broadway at the time period. But at the same time, it's like, okay. It's like a Jane Fonda film of the period, I guess, the comedy she did. (laughs) Possibly, yes. I I probably would agree with that, yes. So The Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox with Goldie Hawn, of all people, and it's kind of a period piece, and The Terminal Man, which I did want to see, but like I said, I couldn't locate it Mm. anywhere. Uh, So you might want to speak to them. Well, Duchess and the Dirtwater Fox is horrible. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I remembered anyway. <laughs> yeah, Melvin Frank, who did, who did a lot of, I don't know, what, he did a lot of these kind of uh, comedies around this time period. Maybe something with Gene Wilder and other people. And he was very popular as a director. And um, from like 74 to 77, you would see his name appear. And this is like a throwback Western type of thingy. Now, I will say 
that Goldie Holt looks kind of hot in this. She was still sort of in her laughing phase where she had those cupid doll eyes or the mascara, the fake well, eyelashes. Yeah, I'm a little post, but she still looked kind of like pre-milfy hot. And um, but it, it's just uh, no nothing. I saw this in the theater, folks. So it's no nothing. This actually opened up for Ilsa, she wolf of the SS. <laughs> yeah. So you had to sit through this, and then you got that, and you're like. And that one opened up with Rated X for your <laughs> scumbag bastards. Oh, uh, which was me. Like, castrate somebody, Diane Thorne. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was just very so lighthearted that they couldn't even cast it well. Like Thayer David from Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows was like <laughs> one of the villains. Like, hello. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's a movie you want to see scantily clad. You know, Goldie Holland, but she looked kind of hottish. And... Yeah, you know, she was like a much hotter version of Terry Gar. If you get the uh, yeah. if you haven't seen any old Goldie Hawn yeah, stuff, it's, it's a Western thing. You know, post go rush. You know, it's I don't know what the hell they were thinking, but there were a lot of movies <laughs> like this around this time period. Even Elvis, when we did our Elvis show with uh, Frankie and Johnny, oh my God, and the Trouble with Girls. Ugh. What was the other one? You... Two worst movies. The one you missed? Uh, the Terminal Man. Oh, that's a bizarre fucking movie. Sorry you missed that one because. Yeah, I want to see that. Yeah, that's uh, very much akin to The Mind of Mr. Soames, a Terrence Stamp. It's, this is based on a Michael Crichton book. Uh, we actually just covered Michael Crichton. George Siegel plays a uh, scientist who suffers from epilepsy. Yo, it's sort of, oh, oh gosh, we just talked about this not too long ago. Maybe it was too long ago. About people who have surgical procedures to remove certain things, like uh, what movie was that? to remove have surgical procedures to remove their violent aspects do you remember oh like clockwork orange we did the kubrick show yeah yeah okay he he has this uh blackouts george siegel has these blackouts you know he's very brilliant scientist he has these blackouts and they put electrodes in his brain to kind of relieve the seizures he's having this is a really fucked up weird movie and i'm sorry you didn't get to see this because this is one heavy freaking picture a lot of people didn't like this either because you know they're watching all these george siegel like happy-go-lucky you know occasionally playing a baddie but you know yeah, he's with the girl, he's with Barbara Streisand, he's with Goldie Hawn, blah, blah, blah. So he's playing a scientist who has seizures, and scientists come in and do, like, brain surgery. And, like, we're going to fuck with you. And it's a really heavy picture. But like Terrence Stamp in the mind of Mr. Soames, the dynamo is pretty heavy. It's like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's, well, it's one downbeat of 70s pictures. films, yeah. Yeah, downbeat 70s films. Um, and But, uh, you know, it's based on a Michael Crichton novel. And I think Crichton had involved himself at some point with this, but, you know, who knows. He usually far. wound up either being the screenwriter as well or, you know, uncredited director or something. Uncredited yeah, he was very much yeah. involved with his films. <laughs> so, uh, Next up, 1977, Fun with Dick and Jane. Seagull, excuse me, I did it again. Seagull co-stars. <laughs> Seagull co-stars with divisive political flashpoint Jane Fonda of Spirits of the Dead and Clute from our Bridget Bardot, Peter Fonda, and Donald Sutherland shows. In this sardonic take on the American way and how it fails anyone who can't or won't fall in line, or even if they do and fall victim to the way corporations are able to post ever-increasing profits for their shareholders every quarter by canning their employees and dumping their workloads on those who remain for now. You can't type and you can't take shorthanded. 
I'm a college graduate, reasonably intelligent, not altogether unattractive. Yes, but will you be happy being a hooker? Interesting that the only jobs you see me as being qualified for are secretary and hooker. You're not qualified to be a secretary. While Siegel deals with the horrors of dealing with the unemployment office, Fonda blows a modeling gig stumbling all over the room and setting the place on fire by knocking over a catering tray. Landscapers repossessing their houseplants ruin Siegel's shot at a well-paying aerospace gig, and his botched gig as an opera extra is seen by his claims officer, who bars him for collecting for three years. I didn't even know they could do that. She even tries to borrow from her folks, but her well-off father drops some bullshit right-wing speech about self-reliance and handouts, leaving with no option short of robbing a bank. And after they're nearly taken as hostages in an armed robbery, where she manages to swipe a few thousand of their take during a shootout, they do. When a desperate Seagulls decides to pull off a robbery, his psych major wife catches them on so many potential mistakes, they decide to do it as a couple, which reinvigorates their marriage as much as it makes them any profit. He botches the convenience store robbery because they don't carry much cash after 10. He walks away from a bar robbery when it turns out to be an all-black clientele. When they start busting all the white robbers in this neighborhood... But things start turning around when they rob a record store, whose clerk takes it all in stride. The robbery of the telephone company elicits cheers from a line of angry customers, and they take the rather large, quote, love offering from one of those shithead prosperity gospel scam artists, Sleazy Dick Gautier. Finally and fittingly, they successfully heist the kitty at Siegel's former employer, with Ed McMahon's help to avoid further scandal after being exposed for bribing his way into lucrative contracts. Roll credits. Both this and Siegel's subsequent film, Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe, were directed by Ted Kotcheff, who gave us the first and by far best of the Rambo films, First Blood, from our Sylvester Stallone show. Perpetually guffawing drinking buddy of Gunny Carson and McMahon of Slaughter's Big Ripoff from our Blaxploitation show. Dueling sleazebags Dick Gautier, the seedy swinger from the werewolf episode of Colcheck the Night Stalker from our Dan Carson the 70 show. And Nico Masarakis' Glitch from my career spanning interview with Nico at Third Eye Cinema. And Fred Willard of Americathon, Moving Violations, and Hustle from our Burt Reynolds show. Even Thalmus Rasulala from Blackula, Bucktown, and Friday Foster from both our Blaxploitation and Pam Greer shows. And Thayer David again of Dark Shadows, and we covered the two House and Night of Dark Shadows films in our Dan Curtis and the 70 show, all get bit parts. Like the later carbon copy, this is a sardonic yet dead-on indictment of the failures of the rich and corporate and the damage that the Horatio Alger myth of the American dream actually causes to the other 99% of us who foolishly buy into these lies. Well, the, you know, this was made at that point... It wasn't technically a recession, or was it? Because that was a bad point in the 70s. No, this this was the point where the gas prices started to yes. rise. Yes, yeah, the whole OPEC. And, and odd people, even days. And, yeah, odd even days, and people were losing their shit. Do you remember when the lettuce was like 19 cents, and all of a sudden it went to like $1.30? Yeah. I, I remember that as a kid. I was like, holy shit, what? Yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, like, my gas was $2, now it's 5 I'm freaking out. It's just out. like now, people. <laughs> It was like, now, like, your gas is $12. Shut the fuck up. So, you know. But it was but, the same differential. The price just skyrocketed for no fucking reason. Yeah. This, basically, you have this couple who had, like, an easy relationship, loving, but not quite. Yeah, just a typical marriage at that time. But, <laughs> but the fact that they started getting to these gigs of like firing them up to like do shit like this like robbing <laughs> convenience stores or robbing something like this they were like oh let's go home and fuck 
Exactly. And they were doing that as a couple, so it's like, you know, they're, they're both kind of engaged. Like, oh, wow, you're really helpful. Yeah, they're, yeah, they're both kind of engaged. and That was really daring. Ooh, that turns me on. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because as kitschy as the idea sounded, it kind of nailed for some people. There's so an like, undercurrent that is really serious and like, oh, my God, this is exactly what's going down, whereas yeah, the rest yeah, are supposed yeah, yeah. to be funny. Yeah. Exactly, and and uh, for some reason, this movie actually made a ton of fucking money in the box office yep. for them. So good for them. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked it. So, um, roller coaster, nineteen seventy-seven. Now do I have your full attention? Screw you. The seventies were infamous for any number of reasons, but two of them were a proliferation of terrorist incidents and skyjackings, particularly pronounced in Italy, generally for ransom rather than insane ideals, and the star fucking disaster film craze. Audience flocked in droves to see films like Earthquake, Avalanche, Hurricane, The Towering Inferno, The Poseidon Adventure, The Airport Movies. The list goes on and on, particularly if you're tagging terrorist disaster threat films like Two Second Warning, Black Sunday, The Kidnapping of the President from a William Shatner show, and so on. And with the ever-expanding list of populous settings for disaster to hit, the next logical locale was the amusement park. Somewhat akin to the ridiculous but entertaining Kiss Meets the Fan of the Park, Roller Coaster centers on an unnamed weird kid, Timothy Bottoms of Hurricane and the Toby Hooper Invaders of Mars, which we covered in our Toby Hooper show, without apparent motive beyond ransom money, who sabotages rides in various amusement parks. There's a typically hilarious and overwrought scene of mass chaos early on, as Bottoms blows the coaster track so that it sticks up a little bit, setting the cars flying into various buildings, concessions, and neon signs. If you get a kick out of the disaster films and how over-the-top they are, this scene will leave you with some real belly laughs. I was sure to clap my ass off at it. Seagull comes in as the safety inspector who cleared the ride for use, who's Shanghai by FBI G-Man, Noir Standby, and to the Devil of Daughter hero Richard Widmark, also of Coma and the Swarm from our Hammer, Michael Creighton, and Michael Caine shows, respectively, into serving as the passy slash drop-off man for the ransom and the sting operation. As the entrapment attempts keep failing, bombs and Siegel get more adversarial, and the bombings continue until the expected conclusion. For a disaster film, there's not that many named stars in the cast. You do get Henry Fonda, also of the Swarm Tentacles and the Boston Strangler from a Tony Curtis show, Susan Strasberg of Hammer's Scream of Fear, Psych Out, and The Manitou, also from our Hammer and Tony Curtis shows, and like I said, maybe we should do a Jack Nicholson show, and that's on the list. It's on the list, yeah. Helen Hunt of the Transfer series and Twister from our Full Moon and Michael Crichton shows in her first film role. And Harry Gordino of St. Ives, Dirty Harry, and Every Which Way But Loose from our Charles Bronson and Clint Eastwood shows. But by disaster film standards, that's kind of a sorry cast list. It can be appropriately tense at times, but it's further hampered by lackadaisical direction by some nobody named James Goldstone, who has no credits worthy of discussion whatsoever, interspersing long scenes of Seagull washing his car and riding in roller coasters amidst what should have been a white-knuckle cinematic ride. What? I think this was also released in Sense Around, which was one of those kitschy things at the time, like uh, Midway, the uh, World War II uh, attack on Pearl Harbor, or vice versa, was released in Sense Around. <laughs> and Earthquake was released in Sense Around. I think Earthquake, I'm pretty sure, was, uh, sorry, Roller Coaster, was released in Sense Around. Yeah, I think you're right. Which was they they amped up the they didn't install anything people those homeschool theaters <laughs> you went to just like turn the volume up <laughs> yeah they 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 didn't have any they yeah, didn't it wasn't until Dolby that they actually made upgrades to the theaters yeah they didn't upgrade shit yeah it was like <laughs> hey it's loud <laughs> but uh, yeah. Roller, yeah, you know, roller coaster was like I don't know. I mean, you could theoretically have done something with the idea, but if you thought about it, 
it would have been a dire project because, you know, like how many actually roller coasters go awry and people die and you know, something fucked up happens. But here they wanted to make a disaster movie as akin to like Towering Inferno, Earthquake, etc., etc. And, you know, the weird thing is this is uh, written by the guys behind the Columbo series. Really? Yeah, uh, Richard Levinson and William Lake. So, you know, you have this interesting cast. It's like an all-star fucker, skull fucker cast <laughs> from the time period. But, you know, it, just, it doesn't amount to much. Yeah. It's probably one of the least remembered since around pictures. One of the least remembered disaster films. <laughs> Yeah, even of disaster films, it's just probably one of the least remembered because yeah, but yeah. but you know I get I give him credit you know like George George has a major part in it, but it's just like what are we doing? But it does have a cool Lalo Schifrin score, <laughs> which doesn't ape Mission Impossible. Yeah, that being was, said, he was game and did his normal amount of uh, dramatizing and thespianism for a film that really kind of didn't deserve it. <laughs> Despianism. I like that. Oh, despianism is. So, 1978, Who's Killing the Great Chefs of Europe? <laughs> Once again, by Tekashev. Weird comedy mystery without a single laugh that revolves around a divorced pastry chef summoned to cater for a powerful gourmand and high-end restaurant critic. When she arrives, her limo kidnaps her into a visit with her ex, who's now a fast food entrepreneur. But despite his efforts to get back on her good graces, she still sleeps around with various European head chefs who mysteriously begin dying off in ways related to their signature dishes. As the mystery, such as it is, deepens, our heroine and her good-natured, if brassy and decidedly déclassé ex get involved once again for a happy ending of sorts. It sounds much better than it actually is. About the funniest this gets is a brief gag where they pan at the business pad, where you hear orgasmic moaning and what sounds like dirty bedroom talk, only to reveal her and her chef boyfriend in their scanties eating his latest dish. Uh, ha-ha? Alongside Siegel, we get an oddly short-cropped, quaffed Jackie Bissett of Sinatra's The Detective, Steve McQueen's Bullet, Mephisto Waltz, Truffaut's Day for Night, Bronson's St. Ives, and The Deep. And we did shows on Bronson McQueen with a Sinatra one we're going to be doing soon. Co-stars with Siegel, and I'd love to do a Jackie Bissett show, we'll be doing that as well. And a strange mix of European art house and horror cult cinema types, like Robert Morley of everything from Bogart's African Queen and Beat the Devil, both from our Hockey Bogart show, the Margaret Rutherford Murder at the Gala, Top Copy, and Richard Johnson British Eurospy Some Girls Do, to the Vincent Price Diana rigged Theater of Blood, The Human Factor with George Kennedy, Scavenger Hunt, The Great Muppet Caper, and Nico Mastarakis' The Wind, once again from my interview with Nico at Third <laughs> Cinema, takes center stage for the first 20 minutes or so. Jean-Pierre Cassel of Malpertuis and Buñuel's Discreet Charm of the Bourgeois, Philippe Noiret of the Assassination Bureau from our Oliver Reed show, and Ferrari's Grand Buffet, Taste the Blood of Dracula and Scream and Scream Again's Peter Salas, the Hammerhound of the Baskervilles, the Au Pair Girls, and Confessions of a Window Cleaner's Jean Le Mercier, the former from our Hammer Show and the latter two from our British Sexploitation Show, and Carolyn Lungriche, second love interest slash boss Charlotte from Ian McShane's Irrepressible Lovejoy, gets a bit as a snarky receptionist. I think it's actually her first role. It's hardly the worst picture you're likely to, to encounter of its era, but it's a real letdown, particularly if you're looking for a Pink Panther-style comedy caper or a Starfucker comedy mystery like The Cheat Detective or even the Don Knotts Tim Conway The Private Eyes. No, no, exactly. You, you you just said it well. Yeah, if you're looking for any of those three, as you just mentioned, it's not that. The 70s, well, the mid to, well, the late mid to late, the late mid 70s to the end of the 70s, there were a lot of pictures rolled out like this. 
They were trying to they were trying to uh, ape the popularity of things like uh, the Ritz and you know the Chief Detective and the Pink Panther films, which even by that time, since Peter Sellers had passed, they they were trying to find pictures in, of that ilk. It's funny, you know, we mentioned Ted Kotcheff a few times. You know, he did one of the better Stallone Rambo pictures, but. Although this has an international cast, as you mentioned, it's like, ee. Yeah, you got art house people, you got cult people, but it just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And Henry Mancini, you know, can't take it away. He's done some great scores and themes, but no, by this time, Henry, hang it up. Oh, and you had to mention before about California Split, which is a couple years before this. Did you want to cover that? Oh, yes. Yes, I did. Yeah, it's a Robert Altman film. You know, hardcore Robert Altman. And it's a tough movie to watch because Ellie Gould, who we covered in our Ellie Gould show, we probably mentioned this, and George Siegel play two guys. They're best friends, like best tight friends, tight friends. They're hardcore into gambling to the point where... Their relationships matter nothing. You know, their relationships to the female friends matter nothing. But then they owe so much money. And then it becomes quite dark. Yeah, um, I, the thing I remember most about this movie, it's well worth seeing, but the thing I remember most about this movie was near the end. They actually win something, and they split the winnings. But one guy's like, I'm going to keep going. And yeah, I don't want to give it away, but the other guy realizes it's time to go. So it has Anne Prentice, Gwen Wells, very good actress, an early uh, performance by Jeff Goldblum. Yes, that guy. It This comes into the uh, counterculture pictures we covered in recent uh, years. Yeah, with all those uh, Ellie Gould and uh, John Sutherland pictures. Yeah, such. the Ellie Gould, John Sutherland things, you know. It's funny, like uh, anything with Elliot Gould, you know it's going to be, if it's not an action movie, it's going to be a downer. Unless it's you know, one of those... Uh, Goofy comedies. Yeah, one of those comedies like he did with George Clooney, the Ocean's Eleven series, where they, they really, you know, so we want to pay you back for all the fun times you gave us. This this kind of falls into that category of... Yeesh. You know, <laughs> no, you got, you got two guys that are always heavily in debt. They're gambling, and they owe money to everybody, like Elvis Presley. And <laughs> and then it's finally like an upbeat thing happens, but one guy is like, I have this money, I want to keep playing. And the other guy goes, fuck you, I'm going. It's a really movie of its time, but on the cusp of its time, because it's uh, it's very strange. You know, it's, it's just like, who did they make this for? <laughs> Yeah, you know, because really, there's there's nothing positive about it. Like right? Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but I'm saying like, you yeah. you know, back in the day when movie audiences went to see a movie and they came out of the theater, they wanted to be happy and you know, blah blah blah. Did you see the Blackbird? No, I was actually going to bring that up because I was like, oh, I saw that in there that I missed too. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's obviously a, <laughs> a knockoff of the Maltese Falcon, I gather. It's a knockoff of the Maltese Falcon again. We have, uh... <laughs> we did a Philip Marlowe show, you know, not even a real person, just a character, and we still didn't mention this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we can't cover everything, folks. We yeah. try. David Geiler, another TV perennial, and Ray Stark, another Broadway guy. And But what's interesting about this is that we had Stefan Audran 
French uh, Sancho's. Uh, Wasn't he a baddie in one of the recent Bond films with Daniel Craig? I know, not Stefan. Okay. She goes way back earlier than that. But Lionel Stander, one of your favorites, isn't it? Yes, Maxim, heart to heart. And Eli- Elijah Sam. Cook, going way back. And uh, Felix Sealer. <laughs> yes, Tweaky. <laughs> no, Cousin It. Cousin It and Tweaky from Buck Rogers. Was it Tweaky as well? Yeah. So, well, you know, there's only so many, uh, well, they don't want to be called midgets anymore, but whatever you call them, little people in Hollywood at any given time. So Apparently, Ray, Ray Stark owned the rights to the Multi-Spalcon. It's like uh, Robert Stigwood owned the rights to so many things. So he got like the uh, Sgt. Pepper's thing going on, yep. remember, back in the day. So Ray Stark owned the Multi-Spalcon rights, and uh, he approached uh, a couple of people and says, oh, let's remake this. With George Siegel as Sam Spade Jr. Okay. Total misfire. <laughs> you you just, you know, they, they couldn't even make a poster that was interesting. Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I saw this. I don't remember much about it. It's just like, no, I think, I think it's around the period, like, we're, we're spreading ourselves rather thin now, aren't we? So, uh, 1981, Carbon Copy. The Bible says, woe unto the wife who turneth her back on a horny spouse. The Bible doesn't say that. It did a long time ago. It was edited out by a lesbian translator. This time, Siegel is a rich corporate shit with a secret past. First, he's Jewish, but keeps that on the down low, because his father-in-law, who's also his boss and CEO, is a fucking racist prick. Jack Warden, the right-wing psycho judge from End Justice for All from our Al Pacino show. Worse, he's married to a frigid and equally racist Susan St. James, lovable in both It Takes a Thief and McMillan and Wife who conspires with the obnoxious daughter from a prior relationship, Vicky Dawson, of one of the better slashers, the prior years, the Prowler, to make his life a living hell despite all their luxury. I had to fire her. She kept forgetting her place. Bianca's from Guatemala. Everybody's importing from Central America these days. They don't resent being treated like servants. It's the second big secret that's a kicker here. He had a black girlfriend before his marriage, who Warden more or less threatened Siegel's climb up the corporate ladder over, and being a spineless ninny, he caved. While she apparently passed on in the interim, she left him with a bastard son, none other than Denzel Washington in his first film role. Mm-hmm. You want to toss those tigers this kind of raw meat? That's the answer. They're animals. Don't appeal to their intellect. Appeal to their instinct. Their instinct is to kill. What about their base instinct? Envy, ego, false pride. Taking a colored orphan for the summer? But if they see a better way of life, they're going to want it permanently. Why give them false hope? It seems so cruel. You accept the busing only because it didn't affect us. When he tries to establish a relationship with a son he never knew he had, Warden and St. James give Siegel the boot, leaving with no place to go and nothing but the money in his wallet, so they hock his golf clubs and move into Watts. The best part is when Warden comes to the Tenement apartment to deliver the olive branch and winds up delivering a speech straight out of Ayn Rand and Atlas Shrugged. You're one of us, and there are so few of us. We are the true minority. Those tiny wheels that keep the big one turning. If we vanish, that wheel stops. It rusts into chaos, anarchy, nihilism. All power of the people, they had it once. It's called the Stone Age. Directed by Michael Schultz, who gave us several lighter-hearted exploitation comedies and such like, uh, like Car Wash, Cooley High, Which Way Is Up, Crush Groove, Disorderlies with the Fat Boys, and The Last Dragon, Who Is the Master? Show Enough, as well as the all-star Richard Benjamin Caper, Scavenger Hunt, and featuring Laffin's Dick Martin, also of 1978's amusing and quite memorable game show, The Cheap Show, which predated You Can't Do That on Television, and putting contestants into a plastic chamber and dumping green slime on their heads if they got a question wrong. 
Where the hell are the reruns of that buzzer? Or the Rip Taylor of Dollar 98 beauty pageant, for that matter? Is his former pal turned lawyer for St. James on their divorce proceedings? And Paul Winfield of Trouble Man, Hustle, and Damnation Alley from our Blaxploitation, Burt Reynolds, and 70 Sci-Fi with a Message shows, respectively, is the lawyer who represents Siegel and Son. It's somewhat dated. Picture being able to afford even a tenement apartment for the hundred bucks or less some dope will fork over for used golf clubs nowadays, and far more honest than today's candy-coated politically correct veneer, but the issues addressed here have not only remained relevant, but have gotten ten times worse easily in the wake of MAGA-fascism and hatred of the other. You have just enough logic to give your sickness respectability. You sentence whole races of people to be born losers, and as the father of one, I object. It's not that he was born with two strikes, but that you won't give him a third pitch to swing at. I would hardly call this one a laugh riot, but it certainly says a lot more than you expected to about being a man and standing up for what's right and what you believe, despite threats and consequences from the rich right-wing fucks who intend to oppress us all, even down to the level of freedom of speech, the right to an equal say, and votes that count, and control over our own bodies. Siegel twice proves himself a coward and traitor to himself, but in the end finally stands up like a man and follows his heart to a presumed happy ending, instead of the misery he allowed himself to submit to, which actually resonates deeply with me as a longtime corporate abuse survivor. What's your take? Actually, it's not that bad. Yeah, it really is. It's not. You think it's going to be a stupid comedy, you know, typical of the era, and it's like, whoa, this is interesting. Yeah, there there were a lot of stupid comedies around this time. They were like uh, Red Fox near the end of his uh, his his time would do things, and and John Ritter would do things with some people, and then there would just be like terrible stupid comedies. And then you saw this thing, and you said, "Oh, it's like an interracial thing, so it's not funny." But it's actually very well done. And and yo, there there are moments, of course, you know, they're trying to appear but michael schultz who was black i wanted to point this out you know he he did the uh the, the very good reference film the candidate and uh, unfortunately he did with sergeant peppers <laughs> but but he also did a couple other movies that are very good and very the movies michael schultz made that were good were unusual and kind of made people think and, you know, he's one of the few, uns, you know, people talk about Gordon Parks and Gordon Parks Jr. And, you know, Fred Williams and all these people. People really rarely mention Michael Schultz because Michael Schultz, with the name, was a black director. And, and it's funny that Michael Schultz made all these fucking kind of pictures. He made a lot of Jewish-centric comic films. But this is not one of those. I think he saw something in this. And yes, this has a very young Denzel Washington in this. And um, I always thought it was a very sweet movie. And it's like, who are they marketing this to? 1981, 82? Yeah, it's it's very strange. But no, you. I think you, you hit the nail on the head. Like, there's a lot of interesting things going on about this. Yeah, yeah and I actually think it harkens back, in Siegel's case, to Fun with Dick and Jane. Uh, it may yeah. actually be saying more than fun and taking chain, but it's the same idea. It's like, oh, let's do a dumb comedy. No, let's say something about you know American yeah. politics and life and you know society. So yeah, it's a good one. So uh, 1985, Stick. Bert is an ex-con, Bert Reynolds, who literally steps outside prison walls and winds up right in the middle of more shit thanks to a ride home from his goofy pal. Turns out, he's a drug mule, and the whole meetup goes sour, meaning his pal is dead, and Bert has to hide out from cleanup man as a witness to the incident. 
then helps sleazy rich fuck George Siegel break into his own car when he forgets his keys, resulting in his being taken on as de facto pool boy. He's the Cato Kalin of the era. Charles Durning of Dog Day Afternoon, Breakheart Pass, Starting Over, and Sharky's Machine from our Pacino, Bronson, and Burt Reynolds shows, respectively, and some of the worst makeup ever captured on celluloid, and looking for all the world like Chuck McCann made up like Fat Bastard from the later Far Inferior Austin Powers sequels, is the low-level Hawaiian shirt-sporting drug dealer who set up the deal gone sour. Bert hits him up for the money owed to his dead buddy for the abortive mule operation so he could settle down in a new life with his estranged daughter. But as events progress, Durning's continuous ineptitude means his boss puts a hit on him and Bert's still on the shit list. Edgar Bergen's other dummy, the always wooden Cadmus Bergen, last seen in the Vegas <laughs> or Michael Caine show, is the bookmaker for, for Siegel, who falls for Bert's waning charms. It's certainly along the lines of the far more enjoyable Sharky's Machine, but something about this one is just kind of off-putting. It's a strange choice for a love interest, a bizarre performance by Siegel, and a hilariously bad makeup job and fat suit for Durning. Like this more of an uncomfortable, oddly comic without ever being funny, side note in Bert's brief 80s cop film makeover. You know, it's not terrible. We talked about it before in our Burt Reynolds show, but, you know, it just doesn't work like the other films do. So what's your take? Well, yeah, it's, yeah, it's during Burt's, Burt Reynolds' renaissance uh, period, his reinvigoration. Like, Getting away from that southern good old boy, you know. The, southern, the post-southern good boy, good old right. boy, and, you know, Sharky's Machine and stuff. And, uh, you know, Kansas, you know, I guess he was dumb like Sally Field. So, you know, he, you know, he did one or two things with Kansas Bergen. I was just like, ah. Yeah, I was one of the guys who watched Moonlighting on occasion. I'm like, oh, yeah, I think Bruce Willis is okay. I didn't think Bruce Willis was anything until I saw Die Hard. Yeah. Um, Charles Durning is Chucky, I think. It's, Although it's you're like, talking about one with Sybil Shepherd. The one you're thinking about is that fucking, uh, what is that, Murphy, Murphy Brown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe so. Well, Kansas and her were pretty much interchangeable, weren't they? Pretty much, except that yeah. I think Kansas Stephen Moore wouldn't. <laughs> Kansas, Kansas Murphy Brown, Bergen, whatever. <laughs> yeah, but Charles Durning, I think, was probably based on somebody like uh, they called him Chucky. I think it was probably based on Chuck McKinn, i.e., the makeup. Yeah, that's what he looked like. Yeah, yeah and. Uh, George, poor George, he was he was given a you know bizarre role. I I I don't know. It, it just it didn't help anybody really. But it's not. It's one of Bert's better pictures in that period. So there's that. Yeah, that's actually the last one that I wanted to cover because after this he starts doing weird things like he shows up and look who's talking now. He does mm. the mirror has two faces for Streisand. He wants with something called my wife is retarded. Uh, yeah, it's just like it goes downhill for him, basically. He stays busy throughout the 90s and early 2000s. He, he did. He did. He, play, he played in, um, yeah, he, he appeared in The Mirror Has Two Faces, which is a Barbara Streisand picture. But one of the things I did enjoy him in, I, I, hold on. He did, oh, for like years, he appeared in something called The Goldbergs, which was uh, from 2013 to 2021. It was a uh, TV show, uh, 2013, yeah, 2021. He played the, I don't know, he played somebody in his TV show. It was an uncle, brother, cousin, grandfather. Oh, Judd Hirsch was the star in the first few seasons. And, you know, I, I watched a few of these things. I'm like, yeah, okay. But I will, <laughs> I will say, I will say, so they remade the Poseidon Adventure a few 
few years back, that Poseidon adventure from 1972. And uh, George had a wonderful part as this jazz musician who hadn't spoken to his son in God knows how long. And when they knew the tsunami was coming, he tried to get in touch with his son. I think was in Japan. Yes, his son was in Japan because he remarried a, a Japanese woman. And George never accepted that, but then it suddenly did. And uh, so this huge tsunami comes, and he's where his best friend is this African-American uh, bass player, because George played a key, uh, piano player. Really sweet part. Really sweet part. And I'm surprised he got overlooked for that, because, uh, you know, aside from being another remake of a disaster film, it looked like he really invested himself in that part. He tends to do that. Films that really don't deserve it, like Roller Coaster. <laughs> yeah, no, but this, yeah, but this is late in the game, and, and yeah. it was like really nice. I actually watched it with the missus, and she's like, "Who is that guy?" <laughs> I said, "Oh, I don't have time to explain." <laughs> <laughs> you know, when you see Elliot Gould in, um, you know, was that Ocean's Eleven, the, the yeah. remake? It's like, okay, it's nice to see him. He's fine in there, but until he's sort of like slumming he's just okay well I got a job this is nice look it's me and I was like you know Seagull doesn't do that he actually like throws himself into it and treats it like it's a serious part and that's what's interesting about him he's not just you know you expect like a 70's comedy guy well yeah but no <laughs> he's more than that well that's yeah exactly that's the thing with George Seagull like, yeah but no he's more than that was there any others that you want to talk to or are we good no I, th- I think we're good yeah, yeah. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on George Siegel. Next time, we'll be doing Frank Sinatra. Yes. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician who'd like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Of course, we're on Podbean, thirdicema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes. Just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular, it's ID 5534020044. We're also on Spotify and Amazon Podcasts. Again, just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, uh, yeah, that's our George Siegel show. And like I had said, we have a lot more stuff coming up. Yes, we have a lot of shows coming up. And, by the way, our, our Frank Sinatra show, which is upcoming, will not be a gig show. It's it's going to be, like, serious. Yeah, because the, the thing is, we're not going to be really talking about his music career. Everybody knows about that. Everybody, yeah. well, obviously, most people love him, uh, you know, in that respect. Certainly, musicians respect what he did. He was a great stylist. I don't know that he was the best, like a lot of people say, but he was really, really a good stylist and worked with the arrangements and, and many different composers and arrangers. I, I, we might disagree on some things, but there are some times when, when Frank Sinatra came to the gate and delivered an amazing performance, like uh, the Manchurian Candy. Yes, he actually was a surprisingly good actor, and that's what we'll be talking about is yeah. uh, his yes. films. I mean, you know, okay, sometimes he can be a little bit uh, one note when, when he's less than invested in some of his earlier stuff. But, yeah. you know, he's not like, okay, Dean Martin. Great Matt Helm films are lots of fun. But, you know, you just think, okay, look, Dean Martin's making a movie. Ha, ha, ha. The Salt and Pepper films. I love those. The Sammy Davis and Peter Lawford. They're jokey. Okay, fine. They're good for what they are. Frank Sinatra is actually capable of doing some heavy, dramatic stuff with some heavy hitter co-stars. 
Like, that's, that's what we'll be talking about. That's what we'll be talking about. And we got plenty of stuff in the kitty here that we'll be getting to. Like yeah. I mentioned, Jackie Bissett, and we talked about Brian De Palma, and David Cronenberg, and Richard Benjamin, and Ernest Borgnine, and the, I can't even remember them all. I actually looked the other day, I said there were seven more. There are ten shows that we decided. Yeah, yeah. Snipes? And the, they, they all sound good, right, folks? Yeah, because and, who, who would not want to hear about those those people? You know, Cronenberg, I know there's a lot of Cronenberg fans out there. I'm sure it's going to be an interesting show because like i don't know there's some things i don't like and some yeah. things you do like and there's probably some things we don't like collectively <laughs> yeah crash <laughs> but um that being said though yo with these people like richard benjamin jackie bissett and ernest bargnay he's not a joke he's a serious actor and there were you know marty did anyone ever see marty i mean yeah. What a great performance. I mean, that's what we try to do here. It's like, yeah, we talk about the cheesy movies, the fun movies, the popular movies, but we also try to bring up and bring to mind, for those who don't know, great performances, you know, or really interesting performances. Oh, and I just remembered a couple more. For those who prefer the slightly more modern stuff, you know, 80s, 90s, we're actually also going to be doing, believe it or not, Eddie Murphy films and Wesley Snipes, which is actually my wife's idea. I was surprised at that one. I was like, you know, that's a good idea. That's a good idea. I like so, yeah. Wesley. <laughs> and and yeah, those Blade movies are fun. Yeah, I, I love the first and third. The second one is, yeah, but nonetheless. So, yeah, we have a lot of stuff on tap. I don't think I even named all ten of the shows. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to keep it going for another year plus. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, by the time you hear this, it'll be a bit busy already. It's just four shows that i got to edit. We're also going to be doing some Sinatra very soon because I'm more than halfway through that one research. Thank you for listening. We always appreciate our audience. Yes. All right. So we will see you next time around. Enjoy.
Sunday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you gotta have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself, discuss the beloved, the 
the career and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television, right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network. Talk radio. Hello, how was your audio? <sighs> Sucks. I don't know if you can hear me, but this whole thing is not working. Alright, give me a minute. Hello, can you hear me? Hello? Yes, can you hear me? Yeah, see, if you're saying anything, I can't freaking hear you. Oh, that's not good. <laughs> it's just so bizarre. Okay. Hold on. Alright. Hello? Yes, hi. Hello? 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 <laughs> Hold on, I have an idea. I'll call you back in a minute. Oh. You're really quiet and muffled. How's that? That's much better. How's that? That sounds fantastic. Fantastic? Wow. Yeah. Best you sound in weeks. <laughs> At least better than last time. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I, I can boost. I can boost. Hold on. Hold okay. on. How's that? Sounds pretty much the same as the last one, but they're great. They sound good. How's that? Same. Lots of bass, you know, very clear. Sorry. I may have to return these headphones because um, the driver won't install. Really? Why not? Yeah. <laughs> I do. Why? They're going to say your computer's cheap or something or too old, even though it's not. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's a, it's, it's a year old. A year, yeah, I know. A year and some change. Um, I'm just telling uh, you, that's what they always say. Yeah, I'm running Windows 10. Right. And uh, believe me, you know, well, I haven't had a lot of time, you know. Uh, yeah. My Sunday. <laughs> oh, yeah, how was the baby shower? <laughs> well, no, it was the baby's birthday. And, okay. You know, you really want to go, but keep the peace. Like, you know, you, you have yeah. to do a couple of pieces, keep the peace things. And, uh-huh. But I got there, and I was like, you told me to be some American food. Uh-huh. All Filipino, my blood pressure, I can't eat this shit. Yeah. And all they had was Filipino food. And <laughs> so I, I ate rice. <laughs> and I had two beers. And, you know, the guy's a bartender, but he just got off a shift at 5 a.m. So he doesn't want to make drinks. You know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm like, thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, eat something. Eat something. Like, what the fuck can I eat here? It's exactly. like salt and fat. That was like my drummer. I don't even want to get into that story, but this person that he wound up with, which, oh boy. Anyway, <laughs> let's yeah. just say that people saw her at my uh, at my wedding and kept asking if it was his aunt. <laughs> but anyway, I went to their, uh, I guess it was supposed to be an engagement party, mm-hmm. but it was really just in her mother's house, which is kind of like a dumpy ranch. with a, mm-hmm. And they had all this like like a table laid out like it was a catering thing, but they made it themselves in the outside porch that they had, you know, like a back sort of half-enclosed porch that was off, like an addition off it. And all they had was like crappy, it wasn't even ham sandwiches. It was like really sleazy, like you get in grammar school, like the sea lunch. It was like that kind of white bread with like, you know, peanut butter and jelly or some crap like that. And that was their whole catering thing. So I'm like, okay, I think I'll drink it. <laughs> so I got totally loaded, especially since I had that same day, 
I was under the weather. I don't know if I had the flu or if I was, you know, Ooh. just getting over some kind of something was going on. And I was doped up on like, you know, whatever the hell. I don't know what kind of drugs I was taking. You know, it was one of those over-the-counter jobs, but still. And of course, mixing that with a whole bunch of drinks and no food all day, I was like loopy. Uh, it was a real. It's quite an experience. <laughs> that whole event. My my niece, you know, the guy's wife. Yeah. Know, she goes, "I'll make yourself a drink," and I'm like, "This guy's got a bar. He's a bartender, so he has like uh, a selection, right?" Yeah. Right. I'm like, "This is fucking weak." <laughs> I mean, Lou Paul got better than this, you know. <laughs> you, you know, people always used to say I make drinks like triples. They're like super extra strong, but <laughs> no, but really, the guy is a bartender at, at yeah. uh He's he's uh, I think he's by Koreatown or someplace like that. I should okay. go visit that. But um, not if you mix drinks, they suck. <laughs> well, no, like like his home selection. I'm like, so you know, she goes, make yourself a drink. I'm like, you don't have this, you don't have that. Uh-huh. And I'm like, no, nah, I'll wait till he comes back because he kept going out and getting his. Wow, he had some weird ass fucking friends. <clears throat> he had the smallest, skinniest guy I ever yeah. saw. And he was like, he goes, he's my brother. I'm like, oh, that's cool, man. You know, you got a blood brother. And it was like this really small black guy came with a backpack, kept it on the whole time and just kept it to himself. <laughs> okay. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> and then his, well, you got you to gotta wait for this one. You got to wait for this one. Okay. His other guy, this other guy comes. He goes, oh, he's, he's one of my best friends. Uh-huh. So he looked like a, a fey Latino dude with this yeah. hot Korean girl. I, and this is his girlfriend. I'm like, wow. <laughs> and, when, and when she left, she goes, hi, goodbye. I didn't get a chance to talk to the girl. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it was like, uh, no, the worst is yet to come. So I, I wanted to bail. I was going to take a uh, Uber or Lyft back home mm-hmm. midday. And, and my wife says, oh, it's not right. Okay, yeah, okay. They're all watching fucking football. <laughs> now you know me for years have I've been to things hey, like man, that what'd you think of that game <laughs> yeah, right <laughs> because you know why yeah exactly same here yeah I have no interest I've I'm been sorry. in those situations trust me <laughs> but you know I'm watching these guys like oh shit man oh, fuck. did you see that and I'm just sitting in the corner like staring at him like okay yeah, <laughs> well, how soon like, do I leave <laughs> I don't want to like Except offend the you know the, the person I'm there for, but Jesus. <laughs> so my niece's husband's father, so he, he's he's had a lot of back issues. This guy, he's a drummer, okay. was a drummer. This guy just chewed my fuck. So what do you think, man? Like uh, Cream, Cream's the best band ever. I'm like, well, no, uh, you know, oh, man, you didn't say I got a pro set. Wow, you got a pro set. That's good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I practice Cream and. You know, what do you like? You know, I want you to be my... What do you mean you want me to be your guitar player? <laughs> <laughs> I got nobody to play with. Them. Where do you live? I, I live out by PA. Oh, my God. <laughs> you know, like the Jersey border? And I'm like, I, I don't know, man. I don't really play much guitar. I'm busy doing all this stuff right now. And hours and hours and hours and so i'm like hey you know if you're on facebook follow me i'll follow you and we'll see where we're at yeah i can't find you i'm not really on facebook look for tony bruno that's my alias (laughs) really like like okay (laughs) so he has the the son right 
I was like, so, hey, your dad says he's, uh, you know, like, uh, where? I can't fucking find him. Oh, I'll send it to you. And it was like four days later, nothing. That's all right, fuck it. Same thing happened to me. There's this guy that uh, my wife was, knew this girl. I guess she worked with her for a while, right? And she, this whole complicated thing where this guy's actually her ex, but somehow they're back together, living together, and they're like the Bickering Bickersons. You know, they, <laughs> they're apparently, you know, I don't know, because I'm sure he wanted to. He kept saying stuff, but she kept, like, rebuffing him. Apparently not fucking anymore, but they're living in the same tiny cramped little apartment, just bickering with each other all the time. So, <laughs> but the guy, I liked him, but he was like yeah. a, a biker, an ex-biker, and I think he was an ex-con too. But nonetheless, he he fixed bikes now. That's what he does. He's like a you know goes to motorcycle shops and he's like the gearhead that fixes. Yeah, so you thought he was okay? Yeah, no, yeah. he was fine. Except that you know, of course, he's all hopped up on meth or whatever the hell else. So he's like jumping around yeah. everywhere. But he was a drummer too, and he's like, oh yeah, we gotta do something, man. We gotta do something. Nothing ever happened. <laughs> like, you know, you know, give me a call, whatever. And do something. Nothing. Well, no, I, I, I said, I said to this guy, look, if you ever want to really do something, this is what I like, and this is what I can play with. Yeah, you know, exactly. So I, I, you know, I said, look, I saw this band, and you know, it's a yes tribute band. I saw the, the you know, who do you, oh, this guy's pretty good. Yes, he's my friend. Yeah. You know, wow, he's got lights in his drum kit. I said, yeah, he does. Mm -hmm. It's pretty cool, actually. Oh, how does he do that? <laughs> it looked kind of cool, yo. Yeah. I told you last week how that ended up. So, um, uh, I don't know. But, so, yeah, that was that. And so my whole Sunday, we got back at, like, fucking almost 8 o'clock. You know? Mm -hmm. So, I have any time to do my show. Right. And, you know, yesterday, uh, you know, working all day, and I had to run out and run to... Madison Square Garden. <laughs> I I recommend though. I know it's very rare you go into Manhattan. But there's no, it this, is, yeah. There's this uh, taco place. Okay. With a rooftop, and it's reasonable. Really? And the food is delicious. Which by Madison Square Garden? Yeah, that's okay. on the corner on 8th. Yeah, when I was there, like, every freaking day practically living there, uh, that was all, like, you know, Lower East Side and the East Village and yeah, yeah, maybe yeah. bleeding into Chelsea, maybe bleeding into Chinatown. I like remember this place. Well, the, the diner's still there. Remember the TikTok? Yeah, sure. So I looked in that place, and I said, you know what? Let me let me check out this other place I remember there. And uh, they had one seat. Thank God I didn't have to go to the roof. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, it's like fucking three stories up. And, uh, no, the food was very good and reasonable. Okay. And, like, you know, they had some tap beers. And it's like, okay, getting into the garden's ridiculous. You know, it's, yeah. I've been there twice in the past couple of years. They're doing construction. No signage. You got to just, like, go on a whim. Oh, do I go in this way? <laughs> <laughs> what I used to love is, yeah, go see all these shows and stuff. Uh, usually with the wife, too. Mm. And... We would start doing because after a while, it's just like I don't want to drive in there. You know, you have to fight with the traffic, you have to deal with the bridge. Yeah. Then you got to find some kind of parking. Half the time, you wind up having to do a damn garage if you're going to see the show. Because I was always getting, God, I get so many tickets. But and then after all that jazz, it was just like I don't know. You know, what the hell with us. Let's just go and relax. We'll take the damn bus in and enjoy ourselves. Well, the problem with that is it's fine on the way in. But on the way out, when you're dealing with big Port Authority there. Port Authority, yeah. yeah. Holy that's shit. what happened to me last and, night. And you get there, like, after midnight, and everything has changed, and nobody knows where to go. We're all looking at each other, like 30, 40 people. They, they move signs. You can say, okay, well, you go up to this floor, which, you know, there's nobody around you can ask. But if you find somebody, they tell you, okay, go up to, you know, floor C, terminals, X, whatever the hell it was. 
and then you go there and there's nothing going on and they got a paper sign there saying oh no all you know 4c signs are now in, you gotta go to 2d so i was running back and forth trying to find this place before the bus comes it's the last one for the night and you're yeah. fucked <laughs> let, let me tell you, so I, I, I kind of sculpted this out. I wrote it on a piece of paper, but I left it at home, of course. Of course. <laughs> so uh, I was like, oh, I'm going to leave early during a set because I got to take a bus. Yeah. And I was like, wow, it's getting better. He's sounding better. All right. All right. This is a good show. I'm like, fuck. All right. You know, this is like after Avalon with Love is the Drug. Two drummers. Powerful bass. I'm like, I like hearing that shit. And I'm like, all right, you know. Right. Oh, you know, they ended with jealous guy. I'm like, oh shit, it's 11:40. <laughs> so I got 20 minutes to get to the port authority before my ticket is void. Right. For my bus, and I'm like, it's pouring outside. <laughs> I got like this little tiny like umbrella for like this, you know, somebody like your wife, like, you know, somebody really tiny and small. And, yeah. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so, yo, it's six blocks. But I'm like, oh, wow, there's like these trannies that look like guys. Uh-huh. So you you wouldn't even be tempted. You know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> no, if the trannies look like girls, it'd be a different thing. But, yo, I'm walking up 8th Avenue. I'm like, Jesus Christ. Uh-huh. And, you know, I see some, like, guys in suits talking to, you know, you think the days are over. They're not over. Guys in suits talking to, like, meth-out sluts. <laughs> I'm like, wow, you look like a businessman, you know, as I'm walking, you know, really fast in the rain. Wow. Because <laughs> I, 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 I'm a guy to, like, watch this shit. I'm uh-huh. like, dude, what are you doing? <laughs> You, you came out of the office late, and you're talking to somebody like you're going to get everything that you get. <laughs> I'm surprised. So I get, I get there, and I said to the guy, uh, I remember 303. Yeah, yeah, 303. You're right, sir. <laughs> up one, up two, walk halfway across the fucking terminal. The line has got like 100 people. Wow. Like, Are you fucking kidding me? It's probably the last bus of the night coming back. <laughs> Wait. Um, <laughs> the bus is yet to come. So okay. I'm waiting, and some... Latina floozy, I don't know where she's coming from. <laughs> Hi, is this the? Bu- yeah, yeah, sure. You know, like I'm looking at her, I'm like, mm, well, yeah, I'm tired, I'm sweaty because it's fucking chewing out because it's raining like crazy. Right. Oh, you're waiting for the this 123 bus? Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we we're talking a little bit, so we get on the bus. And the bus driver goes fucking walking dead. <clears throat> so we, we I got on the bus, I got a seat. Right. More people come on, and more people come on, and more people come on. Got to the point where he goes, that's it. It's like 15 people outside. Oh, man. And he goes, I don't want to leave your people out here because there's not going to be another bus for a long time because of the weather. Yeah. Go in the back. There's nobody. They're all packed. <laughs> I, I got one of these tight masks on. Right. So I'm like, okay, all right, I got a tight mask on, you know, and God hopes it works. <laughs> and um, the guys were standing on the stairs. It was so packed. Wow. And I was like, holy shit. So what happened? I don't see as well at night like I used to. Okay. Age, I guess. I didn't have my glasses on either because I had my mask on. They fog up when I had the mask on. Okay. So I got off a stop earlier. I said, oh, this is my stop. Fucking idiot. So... <laughs> 
So I got off. It's pouring, thunderstorming, like crack of the God of Thor. It was crazy last night. <laughs> I'm like, oh, fuck. I'm a couple of avenues away. <laughs> so I, I get closer to the house. and like, crazy. <laughs> When I got home, the cat was like, hi. <laughs> I already fed you before I left. <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. You forgot. <laughs> yeah, they forget. They, they, that's what cats do. They forget you fed them. Yep. And I was like, I got to take a shower. Yeah, I was going to say, you better all take a shower. Those can get disease there. <laughs> it was like all the stuff I wore was soaked. I was like, God damn. <laughs> but it was a good show. Okay. Well, that's good. And uh, yeah, yeah. Even though they did the Grace Jones cover, you mentioned. <laughs> yeah, you got upset. I was just fucking with you. <laughs> I didn't get upset, man. I'm just messing with you, too. I didn't get upset. No. No, you know, here's the thing. Uh, they played Toronto, and they played Washington, and a lot of people were sharing their videos. Right. And uh, some sites like uh, Sound Consequence or Consequence of Sound and mm -hmm. some other things like that. That I follow, we're, we're sharing these videos. I said, oh shit, Brian Ferry sounds fucking terrible. <laughs> I was like, well, you know, eat it, right? Yeah. And yeah, you know, he's, how old is he? 70 plus, mm -hmm. I'm assuming. And well, yeah, he's weak voiced. And you know, it's a sound guy. It's the same thing I encountered when I saw Bob Seeger twice. You're supposed to boost that guy on the vocals. Of course. If he can't project like he used to because of age or whatever, it's up to you to boost those vocals. You know, and they did it up to the point, but but strangely enough, midway through the set, he gets out of the keyboard because right. most of the set he's playing the keyboard, Brian Ferry, and he starts like, okay, I'm getting into this now. Whoa. And he's like, oh, he sounds better. Right. I'm like, all right. You're never going to see them again, so I, yeah. that's why it went. And so, this, so was Eno there, too? Huh? Was Eno there, too? No, Eno wasn't there. And here's the interesting thing. When they first announced the tour, Eddie Jobson was supposed to be there. Okay. Yeah, Eddie Jobson was on a couple of those Roxy albums. Eddie Jobson was in Yes and a couple of other things. And strangely enough, the tour begins now with Eddie Jobson. So we have two other keyboard players. They had two drummers, as you can see. Right. Uh, which is interesting, you know. But this kind of music, do you really need two drummers? But it's, I kind of get it in a way because it's like filling in any kind of open air. Yeah, it's like, do you ever need two drummers? But yeah, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, it was good. I, I you know, it works when I, you got a drummer and a percussionist like Santana. Yeah, yeah. The, well, the when sometimes the other drummer was playing percussion, sometimes they were both going at. Yeah. I felt so young last night. <laughs> Sitting next to uh, Richard Butler and uh, who else was there? Richard Grieco? Matt Dillon. Matt Dillon, there Matt you go. Dillon. <laughs> Matt Dillon, uh, yeah. yeah. No, but, just, but beside that, yeah, everybody was really nice. It's funny, you know, it's, Elaine Dora said, hey, this, I didn't even notice. People said, did you get upgraded? Yeah. What's that about? I want to get closer. Well, listen, listen, wait, wait till the first act is over and then you know, more people will come, and if you see some open seats, go for it. Don't go for it now. Should I ask the guy if I can get closer? No, no, don't ask the guy. <laughs> yeah, I was like, constantly adequate. You yeah. know, like, if you see empty seats, go for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. But, like, I mean, this is like a 65-plus crowd. Mm -hmm. I was like, I feel like a kid. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, you know, people keep passing you and like, I have to get up. Well, here's the thing, though. I had a good seat in the 200s on first aisle one, row one, seat one. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm going in there and they're like, would you like to be upgraded for free? I'm like, fuck yeah. <laughs> so I figure if I don't like the seat, I'll go back to my seat. Mm-hmm. And the guy says, oh, you're in, you're in the aisle seat. It's okay. Because when they re, they redid the garden, it's for people 5'4". I'm 6'3". You know, my, my knees were out. <laughs> there was a really nice guy who was like 6'6". Okay. Who said, I have the seat next to you. So we talked a lot uh, before the, any of the band started. And he's like, I think I'm going to find my own seat because uh, I don't. I said, yeah, I don't think you're going to be able to sit next to me, man. <laughs> Because, yo, you, you're even taller than I am. Man. What are you going to do with your legs? Exactly right. <laughs> no, it was a fun night, except for, you know, I get off the bus to the wrong stop and thunderstorms and <laughs> soaking wet. I was like, shh. Can't, they, I forgot you fed me. <laughs> you know, yes, things like that. Do you want to test this? Let me know how it goes. Okay. All right. Ben Gazzara of Marco Ferrari's Ornella Muti starring take on the hard-living poet <laughs> Charlie Bukowski, Tales of Ordinary Madness. How do you, how you hold on, what? how do you find, like, the deepest shit movies this guy's <laughs> It's the only ones I care about, this bottom line. It's like, what do you do that's culty or interesting or funny? One, it's like one of Ben Gazzara of, like, killing birds that rip their eyes out, but, you uh, know. <laughs> Stacio Bernardo. Everybody's going to go for like, oh, what's the Oscar winner? Please take that stuff and show it up your ass. (laughs) I already told my piece about that. E.J. Marshall, too. (laughs) So let's see. (laughs) 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 Got me laughing. Bo Hopkins of Tentacles and Nico Mastarakis of Nightmare. (laughs) Kill me, kill me. (laughs) 